0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So open the Word of God to our two scripture readings this afternoon. First of all, we go to the end of the Bible in Revelation 19 verses 11 to 21. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him "...riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun." who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh." Now we turn back to the Old Testament to Psalm 7. We find our text for this afternoon in verses 9b to 13. The title over this Psalm reads, A Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. O Lord, my God, if I have done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have done evil to him who is at peace with me or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in Your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, Decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you. Rule over them from on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. O righteous God who searches minds and hearts, bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. My shield is God Most High, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. He who is pregnant with evil and conceives trouble gives birth to disillusionment. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he has made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Beloved congregation of Christ Jesus, they often had problems getting along. At least that's the way it looks from Scripture. The tribe of Benjamin and King David several times were at loggerheads. And a lot of it seems to do, predictably, with the animosity that Saul felt towards David. In 2 Samuel 16, we read about a man named Shimei. Shimei came from a town called Bahurim. Shimei was from the same clan and Benjamin as Saul's family. And as David was approaching Bahurim, while he was fleeing from his son Absalom, Shimei appeared and started throwing rocks at David and his entourage. He cursed King David, and he called out, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel! As they walked along the road, Shimei followed them on the hillside next to the road and continued to throw stones and and dirt at God's anointed. However, when Abishai asked the king for permission to just run over and cut off Shimei's head for a moment, David refused to let him. He let Shimei go on cursing and throwing rocks and dirt. In Psalm 7, we find a similar situation, except it's even more desperate. In this psalm, David is being pursued by another man from Benjamin. Aside from what we can surmise from this Psalm, we don't know much about this Cush, the Benjamite. All we know is that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was trying to kill David, God's anointed. Cush is behind the crisis that's facing David here in this Psalm. And even though this crisis lacks a lot of detail, we know enough to know that, there is, that this is something outside of our normal range of experiences. Perhaps there are some exceptions among us, but most of us have never been pursued by someone intent on killing us. We can't relate to what David was going through some 3,000 years ago. So how can we, New Testament believers living in 2007, still read and and sing this psalm? Should we still read and sing this psalm? Well, there are two things we need to do. First, we need to think carefully about this psalm in its original setting, its original context. What was God revealing about Himself to the first readers and the first singers of this psalm 3,000 years ago? And with that question we right away take our starting point in the fact that this psalm is not so much about David's subjective opinions or ideas about God but about God's objective revelation of himself. That's in the first place. Second, we also need to take seriously the words of Christ in passages like John 5:39 to 40. In John 5, Christ was speaking to the Jews and he said You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about Me. And when he said Scriptures, he was referring to the Old Testament, including the book of Psalms. And so Christ says that the Psalms testify about Him. Including Psalm 7. And we need to discover then the manner in which Psalm 7 testifies to us about Christ, the one who is at the center of God's revelation in Scripture. We're going to do all that this afternoon by focusing on several verses from the middle of this psalm. I've chosen as the text verses 9b to 13. Now the beginning of the text choice, 9b, may look a little bit odd when you look at your NIV Bible. However, on the liturgy sheet, you'll notice under questions or items for further reflection and discussion, you note that the, the NIV rearranges verse 9 so that what we call 9B is at the beginning and 9A is at the end. And on the liturgy sheet, you can see a more literal translation of this verse. And it's this more literal translation from the Hebrew that we're going to follow this afternoon. And incidentally, that more literal translation can basically be found in all the other standard Bible translations as well, such as the NASB, the New King James, and the English Standard Version. So with that introduction behind us, let me lay out where we're going this afternoon with verses 9b to 13 of Psalm 7. Our theme is going to be David expresses his confidence that God will respond to his crisis. And we'll see that this involves, first of all, a confession of faith in God his Savior. We'll see that in verses 9b and 10. And then second of all, an anticipation of God being a just judge. And that's in verses 11 to 13. Well, our psalm begins with David addressing Yahweh his God. He says to Yahweh in verse 1, O Lord my God, I take refuge in you. And then he asks God to deliver him from the the enemy who wants him dead. Then in verses 3-5, to David asserts his own innocence. He says that he's done nothing to Cush to deserve this kind of treatment from him. And if he has, then he says, well, let Cush have at me. Then I deserve it. But he knows that he's innocent. And that's why he calls on Yahweh to rise up and meet the anger of Cush. He's looking to God for justice. He says, let God judge between me and that man. Let God decide who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And at the beginning of verse 9, he begs God to make the evil deeds of the wicked stop and to establish those who do what is right. And then we come to verse 9b. Indeed, the righteous God examines the hearts and minds. David says two things about God here. First of all, he says that God is righteous. simply means that God will do what is right and just. God's people never have to fear that God will be unfair. Ever. And second, he says that the, the righteous God examines hearts and minds. Literally, the Hebrew says hearts and kidneys. Just a special way in Hebrew of referring to the internal side of man, to what lives inside a person. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel came to Bethlehem to anoint a new king to replace Saul. God had sent him to Jesse and Samuel knew that he was supposed to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the replacement for Saul. He didn't know which one when he got there. When Eliab approached, Samuel was convinced that he was the one, the one who was going to be the new king. After all, he was a good-looking man. He was tall. As far as appearances go, he was a very suitable king. But then Yahweh spoke to Samuel at that exact moment, and he said, Do not consider his appearance. Or his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And so there's a consistent picture in Scripture of God as the One who can do what is just and right because He can see what no one else can see. Earthly judges... Well, they can only judge on the basis of external things, on the the basis of things that can be observed, whether that's things that you see or things that you hear. No earthly judge can look into the heart of a man and infallibly see what motivated him to do this or to do that. On the other hand, this heavenly judge revealed in Psalm 7 has X-ray vision. His gaze penetrates into the innermost parts of a person. For better or for worse, he knows what lives in the hearts of all of us. For David, those truths gave him comfort in the middle of his crisis. Because David knew that the heavenly judge would look at his heart and the heart of Cush and he would examine both of them. David knew That he'd done nothing wrong to Cush, so he had nothing to fear from God. In this particular crisis, David wasn't at all concerned that God was the all-knowing judge. In verse 10, he goes on to say that the Most High God is his shield. In other words, this righteous judge who knows the hearts of all men, he's on David's side. He's going to be protected from whatever Cush can throw at him, just like David's men would have literally shielded him from the rocks and the dirt that Shimei was throwing in 2 Samuel 16. God is the one who is his shield and his salvation. The last part of verse 10 says that God saves those who are upright in heart. And notice again here the emphasis on the internal, the heart. God is a Savior for those whose heart is straight, right, correct, upright, and honest. The implication is that David is again asserting his innocence in this matter. Not saying that he's sinless. We know enough about David from elsewhere in the Bible to know that that's not the case. We have plenty of penitential psalms from from David where he confesses his sin and pleads for forgiveness. But David is saying that in this particular crisis, he's not to blame. He bears no guilt. David is confident that he is the man for whom God will be a shield and Savior. He's expressing his confidence that God is on his side. And that leads us to ask the question, why? Why? Why was God for David? Well, it was only because of God's gracious covenant promises to him. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that He would watch over him, that He would protect him, and that his house would endure forever. The covenant with David Second Samuel 7 is rooted in God's promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and even further back in His promises to our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, after the fall into sin. God was for David because he promised to send salvation through the seed of the woman. In his grace, God was going to bring a redeemer for, for King David and for all of his people. In the covenant of grace, God promises to be on the side of His people. And that's what's at the background of David's confidence in this psalm. And guess what? That confidence can be ours too. Because we too, we are members of this covenant of grace, aren't we? God has promised to be our God and our Father. He has promised to be our shield. Those promises were fulfilled for David and they were fulfilled for us in the coming of Jesus Christ. Since Christ has come, we know with even greater certainty and confidence that God will indeed be for us. Because God He sent His own Son to suffer and die for us. And so as we face the crises of life in 2007, whatever they might be, we can be comforted and we can be assured by God's Word here in Psalm 7. And even more by the, the way that the Apostle Paul works that out further in the New Testament. In Romans 8:31 to 32 What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Aren't those beautiful words? Indeed, loved ones, in Jesus Christ, God is for you. Just as He was for David. Yes, it's true. He still searches minds and hearts. But when He does that today among those who believe, what does He find but His own work? He finds those with hearts of flesh. He finds new creations. He finds those who are in Christ and therefore upright of heart. And so today when we sing and when we read Psalm 7, we keep our eyes fixed on God and His covenant promises and on the fulfillment of those promises in Christ. This Psalm too, it, it testifies of God's grace and His mercy for His people. And I trust that we, we have no problem believing that. The problems start when we come to the words of verses 11 to 13, at least I suspect for some of us. We find it easy to love a God who is a shield. isn't it true that a shield is passive? A shield just sits there and absorbs all the force of whatever gets thrown at it? We have more of a problem with a God who is a warrior. A God who is active. A God who fights back the wicked. That's one of the images that this psalm uses to describe God. And we're going to look at that a little bit more in a moment. But verse 11 begins with another image or picture of God. And it's not a new one. It's of God as a judge. It's not new. Verses 3 to 5 assume the notion of God as judge. In verses 6 to 9, the image becomes more explicit. David asks God to Called the nations together into his courtroom. He asked God to dispense justice and to judge the peoples. And so when verse 11 tells us that God is a righteous judge, we've been prepared to hear that. Yes, we know that God is a judge who will judge justly and rightly. But the next line, well, that has an intensity that shakes us up. Our NIV translation says that He is a God who expresses His wrath every day. When we read this verse, we need to keep in mind a basic feature of Hebrew poetry which I've mentioned before. Just to refresh your memory. It's called parallelism. Many times in Hebrew poetry when you have two lines, they parallel each other. And oftentimes the second line is simply expressing the thought of the first line in a, in a slightly different way. Sometimes the second line is, is building on the first line. Well, that's what's happening here in verse 11. God's expressing His wrath, as the NIV puts it, is parallel to His being a righteous judge. Righteous judges can be expected to do exactly this sort of thing. This is even more obvious when we dig a little bit deeper into the words used in the second part of verse 11. The verb translated as expressing his wrath has the sense of a legal judgment, actually a legal curse. There's a strong level of emotional intensity here. But we're still in the courtroom before the judge. And what this is meant to convey is that God is not a part-time judge. You know, in some remote parts of Canada, you'll still find circuit judges. Especially in the Arctic, there are remote villages where... uh, a judge and his legal entourage will, will fly in and show up once per month and will have a court day for the village. God is not like that sort of judge. God is always behind the bench and He is always dispensing His judgments. doesn't take coffee breaks or holidays. And for King David at that moment, that would have been a comfort to know that. Because it meant that there was a precedent It's not like God has never dealt with people like Cush before. He has. And on a regular basis. God regularly deals out justice to the wicked. He gives them what's coming to them. And so if people like Cush don't turn from their ways, if they don't repent or relent, they have to know what's coming. That's what verses 12 and 13 lay out. If people like Cush don't turn, then then God is coming after them like a warrior. The judge will will take off his robes and reveal his battle fatigues. Now note how this doesn't fit with the prevailing views of what God is like in in our broader culture. Many people today think that God is a sort of divine Santa Claus. He knows if you've been good or bad, but unless you're really, really bad, everybody gets presents in the end. Or they believe that God is distant and He's uninvolved with the world. could care less what happens here. A book was published a couple of years ago. It surveyed American young people about their religious views. And the author discovered that most American young people, and I suspect it probably also applies to Canadians, are what he called moral therapeutic deists. Moral therapeutic deists. They believe that God is mostly distant and uninvolved unless you need moral direction or therapy. But this view has nothing to do with the God who reveals Himself in Psalm 7. This God does get involved. And He's certainly no Santa Claus figure. In Exodus 15, we find another song in which the the people of Israel, they sang, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is His name. The man who doesn't repent Should know that this God will be sharpening his sword. The sword is a well-known symbol of divine judgment and justice in the Bible. The sword in ancient times was used for close combat. In close combat, you see the whites of the eyes of your enemy and you feel the intensity and you feel the adrenaline. God may come after the enemy in that fashion, but he may also use a different approach. David also portrays God as an archer who is bending his bow, stringing it, getting it ready to send flaming arrows through the air. The bow and arrow was a terrifying weapon of war because arrows were three things. They were silent. They were sudden. And they were swift. You might not even see them coming. And the fact that the arrows in this psalm are flaming, we're told that they're flaming, is meant to intensify. You feel when you contemplate this. You don't want to mess with this divine warrior. Judgment might come sooner, or it might come later. But it will come. Now the image of God as a divine warrior, it's not just found in the Old Testament. It's taken over into the New Testament as well, and it is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For instance, in the first chapter of Revelation, John tells us that he saw Christ. In verse 16, he says that out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. John sees him as the rider on the white horse in the passage we read from Revelation 19. In verse 15 he said, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And so we could go on. Christ is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead at the last day. And Like in Psalm 7, this judge will take off his robes and he will reveal his battle fatigues as well. Revelation 19, verse 11, With justice He judges and makes war. He's the Prince of Peace, but He is also the divine warrior who will destroy His enemies. Now seeing Christ in these words of Psalm 7 helps us as we read and sing these psalms today. This Psalm, Psalm 7, contains a a warning for us as God's people. Note again, very carefully, who the enemy was in this Psalm. He wasn't a Gentile. He wasn't a Canaanite or a Philistine. Cush was an Israelite. He had been circumcised on the eighth day. He had received the sign and seal of God's covenant. Yet he chose to align himself against God and his anointed king. He set himself against David, tried to kill him. And in so doing, he was actually making war on God because David represented God. This wasn't a a personal vendetta. It was an unholy war against the holy God. And how does Psalm 7 reveal God's response? God will be the divine warrior. And you know what? The presence of a warrior, it can be either comforting or terrifying, depending on whether or not the warrior is on your side. In this psalm, David is confident that the divine warrior is on his side. And he's confident that he's not with Cush. That he's dead set against him. And what it happened more often in the Bible that God was the divine warrior going to battle against His own people. Against His own people. In Lamentations 2.5, we read that the Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. And there are many other passages like that in the Old Testament. In the New Testament era, God fought against the unbelieving people of Israel with the sword of Rome. Last week we heard about 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans. Closer to home, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, God struck them down dead. In Revelation 2.16, the Lord Jesus warned the church at Pergamum to repent of the error of the Nicolaitans. He said in that letter, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and." will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In the same chapter, the Lord Jesus also warns the church at Thyatira because she tolerates the false teacher whose nickname was Jezebel. Christ promised to be the divine warrior against that church unless she would repent. And using the language of Psalm 7, Jesus says... I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. And so loved ones, when we see that Christ takes over that divine warrior image, and he takes over the language of Psalm 7, he takes those words upon his own lips, and applies it to the church as a warning. We should learn from that. We should be warned. In Matthew 6.24, the Lord Jesus said that we cannot serve two masters. You're either for or against God's anointed. And conversely, God is either for or against you. There's no neutral ground in how we relate to God. It's either a relationship of friendship or a relationship of enmity. Then you throw up your hands and you say, well, who can do this? I know that I can't serve two masters. But this is exactly what happens in my life over and over again. I do try to serve two masters, sometimes even more. Do I need to fear the divine warrior? Listen carefully. Verse 12 of Psalm 7 says it plainly. If he does not relent, or better, if he does not repent... If you go on living in sin, trying to have two masters and so on, and you just don't care, you do need to fear the divine warrior. His sword is sharpened for you. And His arrows are on the string and they're aimed in your direction. And they may come at you in this life. Maybe not. But they will for sure come at you after you take your last breath. However, for all those who believe, when by God's grace you repent of your sins, when you truly hate your sins and your wickedness and your rebellion against Him, when you constantly go to the cross and you ask for God's forgiveness because of Christ, breathe a sigh of relief because you may know yourself to be safe with this warrior shielding you, defending you, protecting you. When you're like David and embracing the promises God made to you, His child, you can know that this warrior and judge is on your side and will always be for you. Loved ones, this, this psalm confronts us again with belief and unbelief and the results of both. And I know they're not pleasant to consider. But we have to. And when we sing this psalm together in church, and we're we're going to sing it again in a moment, we're reminding each other and we're teaching each other with God's Word about these important truths. Remember, as as we heard several weeks ago, that the singing of psalms in public worship, and we could send that to elsewhere, it's not only a matter of singing praises to God. That's an important aspect of our singing, to be sure, But it's not the only aspect. It's not the only reason we sing. Here again, we can refer to Colossians 3.16. In Colossians 3, the singing of Psalms is connected with letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another or teach and warn one another with wisdom. Now let's keep that in mind as we sing Psalm seven in a moment. Now let's pray. O God most high, most holy and mighty, we've heard the tidings of you and of your might. We've heard again how you are the righteous God who searches minds and hearts. We confess you to be our shield, and we praise You for that. Thank You for being the God who saves. We also acknowledge You as the mighty judge and divine warrior. We know that You are just and righteous, and we worship You as such. We adore You for being the one who will always do what is right. And Father, we also know that someday You will send Your Son to execute the final judgment that He will come to tread the winepress of the fury of Your wrath. And when He, the divine warrior, appears, we earnestly pray that we would all welcome His appearance. Help us to embrace the promises You've made to us. Give us more grace with Your Spirit so that we would never be on the wrong side of Christ the faithful and true. Help us as a church as well to remain faithful and true to You and to Your Word. We pray that You would give us hearts of wisdom and lead us in teaching and admonishing one another, whether through the singing of psalms or whatever other means You provide. We pray that You would help us in this, so that Your name receives more glory. We pray in the name of the Word of God. Amen.